Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada, and today we continue to look at the final chapter of Ruth with Dr. John Newfeld, exploring themes about love. Let's listen in as we examine a message about love and the power of a legal commitment in Ruth chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. We live in an interesting day. Homosexuals are passionate about the right to marry, and heterosexuals are abandoning the right to marry in order to simply live together without ceremony or legal commitment. Of course, common law marriages are considered marriages in Canadian courts of law and therefore are subject to the same privileges under the law that are found in legalized marriages. That is, you can claim your common law spouse in the same way as you can claim your married spouse in terms of taxation. But in Canada, at least if I understand it correctly, in the case of a breakup, the assets are not divided in the same way as in the case of a legalized marriage. And yet some married couples are insisting on prenuptial agreements in which the assets that each party brings into the marriage are protected. And some have a fear that legality seems to get in the way of love. Where is the freedom of just celebrating love without a judge and lawyers and Canadian law infringing upon people's happiness? And when love ends, where is the freedom to exit the relationship without the financial carnage that follows? But biblically, a legally solemnized union is precious in God's sight. From the very outset of the Bible, after the creation of the man and the woman, the Bible expresses God's intention. Genesis 2, 24 states, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. At some point in time, the man breaks his first commitment to his parents and forms a first commitment to his wife. And that's the basis for marriage. The idea of becoming one flesh is the idea that the two form one unit who share all of life, their bodies, their assets, their future. Everything is held in one. Furthermore, the Bible provides a formalized union as a basis. Most of us are aware at Christmas time, at least, we retell the story of Mary and Joseph that engagement was very formal and proper in that time. It was called betrothal. There would be a formal marriage ceremony announcing betrothal, that is, the intention of a couple to marry. And during this period, the couple were not permitted to engage in sexual relations, but upon marriage, the man would take the woman into his house and they would become one. Now, in our study of the book of Ruth, we have come to the place where Boaz has committed himself to marrying Ruth and fulfilling the law of what has been called a Leverite marriage. But because a closer relative to Ruth's dead husband was found, as we saw, he had the right of first refusal. Through some rather skillful bargaining, Boaz managed to get the closer relative or the potential redeemer to give up his right to Ruth. He had wanted the property that went along with the widow. He just didn't want the widow herself, nor the fact that the land he purchased could not be held in his possession. And when we come to Ruth chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, we see the formalizing of a complicated agreement that would allow Boaz and Ruth to become husband and wife. Let's follow the narrative through, and let's see how the Bible places a great deal of emphasis on the legal side of love. We're reading from Ruth chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. 
Now, once it had been established that Boaz was going to purchase the ancestral property of Elimelech, marry Ruth, have children with her, and surrender the land to the child born to her, and that the closer relative was not interested, it was time to seal the deal in a formal legal contract. What follows, at least to me, is quite interesting. We know from the genealogy at the end of the book that Ruth was written at least some 50 years after these events, and it is clear that customs have changed. The reader had to be told about a custom that was no longer in effect. Most likely, this was especially important because if you read Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 9, there is a practice of pulling off a sandal in order to shame someone who will not fulfill a Leverite marriage, but clearly that's not what was done here. Here, pulling off a sandal in some fashion is like you or I going into a lawyer's office and signing a legal document in the presence of witnesses. But how did the sandal make something legal? What seems quite likely here is that the practice of the nearest redeemer, the unnamed man we have called Mr. So-and-so, when he pulled off his sandal and gave it to Boaz— It was likely a practice related to Genesis 13, verse 17, wherein Abraham is told that every place he walks in the promised land will be his. That promise is repeated to Moses in Deuteronomy 11, verse 24, and to Joshua in Joshua 1, verse 3. Very likely, this practice meant that the closer redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, had forgone his right to walk the breadth of the land in question and to claim it as his own. Of course, that meant that he would not have the right to be in the lineage of David. And ultimately, it meant that he would not have the right to be in the lineage of Jesus, the Savior of the world. But no one knows that. But by taking off his sandal, he would forgo his right to that land. He signed away his right of redemption or purchase of the property. Okay, we get that. The deal is legal. Now let's continue to read in verses 9 to 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance and that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Let's get the difficult part out of the way at the outset. A great many people have taken issue with the idea of Boaz buying Ruth to be his wife along with the property, as if Ruth was regarded as property. But it is always a mistake to take 21st century values and impose them on an ancient text. Ruth's refusal to fall in love with a man her own age reflects her commitment to her mother-in-law and her economic future. And Boaz's commitment to purchase Ruth and property is his commitment to care for Naomi as well as Ruth and as well as Ruth's offspring. He is securing in this marriage the financial stability of Ruth's entire family. And that's why love and legality go together. You can't say you love someone for one hour and then leave that person to fend for themselves in the future. Love cares for the whole person emotionally, physically, spiritually, and financially. In marrying Ruth, Boaz covenants himself to the memory of Elimelech and his two sons. He guarantees Naomi's place within the territory of Israel and protection when she is old. In some way, and I can't help but see the theme of genuine sacrificial love here. It's the theme of a man who denies himself for the sake of others. But some people have problems with Ruth because this is not a typical story of love, in which two people fall madly in love and can't live without each other. 
Instead, this story seems, well, just a story of a gracious man who's concerned with others. Yes, in one sense, that is true. But it is right here that we begin to see that Boaz, in many ways, prefigures Christ. Like Boaz, Jesus was not our nearest kinsman and so had to sacrifice to become that, to take on flesh and blood in order to be our human redeemer. Like Boaz, Christ saw that we were in danger of being cut off and of having no inheritance in the things of God. And so according to Hebrews 9, he has gained for us an eternal inheritance. Like Boaz, Christ paid sacrificially so that we could be redeemed. And like Boaz, what Christ did for us was attested by witnesses, as Peter would say later in 2 Peter 2 verse 9. These things were not done in secret, but that were in fact, there were eyewitnesses. The elders at the gate have witnessed the transaction for our redemption, and those witnesses are the apostles who have given us the New Testament and bear witness that Christ has purchased our eternal redemption. And finally, just like Boaz, Jesus established our redemption by enacting a covenant, a legal binding agreement which announced on the night that he was betrayed a new covenant in his blood. What then do we learn about love and legal agreements? Well, first of all, we learn that love is always a public affair. In the case of Ruth and Boaz, the matters of love were established by witnesses, and eventually it would involve all the citizens of Bethlehem who would rise up and bless them. I know that's strange to Canadians in our day. We have bought into the line that a true love relationship between a man and a woman is just between them, but that's never true. Love always involves others. It impacts others. You know, when my children married, suddenly there were others in our family. And what's more, now there are little children. Love is never simply between two lovers. It's always a community affair. A family grows and it expands and must find public statements of what that love actually means to the whole culture. The same is true with our love relationship with God. No one can love God, says John, and not love his brother or his sister. No one can be a recipient of the sacrifice of Jesus and not be one who sacrifices for others, for God's people, for the church, for those who are in need. For to be loved by God always demands that we care for each other. And when we come back, we'll see that love is not just a public affair. This public affair must begin with a legally binding contract. Ruth and Boaz's marriage symbolized both sacrifice and integrity. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will help us see more truth about the importance of love as a binding contract. Every month, thousands of ministry friends across Canada send in their gifts to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. We couldn't do this without you. Your gifts sustain our Bible teaching programs on this station, on our website, podcast, and mobile application. Your gifts provide all of our audio programming electronically and all of our print resources for free, breaking down barriers for anyone to access trustworthy Bible teaching. Your gifts provide our young adult Bible engagement podcast and website in doubt to thousands of young people every month. Your kindness is critical to all we do. So thank you. And please continue to support and bless this ministry with your prayers and gifts. You can call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. We have said that love is always a public affair. 
Now to that we add, love is always a binding contract. Just as Mr. So-and-so pulled off his sandal and just as Boaz took it and formalized his love for Ruth in this way, so it is with all true love. In our day, when it's easy and convenient for couples to just live together, we proclaim loudly that there can be no true love without a formal binding contract. For the contract is the resolve of the heart, and without a contract, the heart is never resolved. And in Ruth 4, verse 10, Boaz turns to the ten men who have witnessed the contract and says, You are witnesses this day. See, what follows next are not the words, and they lived happily ever after, but what follows next is the verbalization of the blessing that comes not just from the ten men, but from everyone who's assembled at the gate. Remember, all these things happened during the period of the judges, where we are told everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. The dark ages of Israel's history, when sexual promiscuity would have been rampant, people acted selfishly for their own gain, murder and rape were rampant, public decency had been degraded in every area of life, people worshipped whatever God made them feel good, and if they paid a priest enough money, he would become your personal priest and bless you whatever you did. And in this context, to actually see two people acting out of faithfulness to God's commands filled the crowd in Bethlehem that day, gathered at the gate to see it. Well, it just filled them with joy. And all the people respond. Well, it's clear that they didn't say all the next words in unison, but someone in the crowd said it. And after it was said, everyone said, amen, so passionately that what that one person said was the expression of what was in everyone's heart. Boaz and Ruth created a revival for the God of Israel in Bethlehem at a time when such things would have seemed impossible. And what was said? Well, verses 11 and 12 say, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. That's quite a mouthful. Without robbing those words of their poetic beauty, please notice that in pronouncing blessing on Boaz and Ruth, the blessing contains three items that are really quite profound. First, they want Ruth, the foreign woman from Moab, to take her place among the great matriarchs of Israel with Rachel and Leah. From them came the twelve tribes of Israel. These two women established the chosen people of God. And I'm not sure what they were saying, but perhaps they wanted Ruth's children to be a new Israel, reestablishing what it meant to be the people of God. And wow, I wonder if they knew how true that blessing was going to be. This woman's great-grandson would be Israel's great king, a man after God's own heart, who would establish Israel's worship and reinstate Israel's faithfulness to the word of God. We'll come to that in the last sermon on this series, so I will hold my comments for that moment. Now, the second facet of their blessing, may the two of you, Boaz and Ruth, act worthily in Ephrathah. If you have followed this series through, you'll remember that when we first introduced Boaz, we were told he was a worthy man, a man, we said, of Chayil. We said he was a man of courage, probably a decorated war veteran, a man of wealth, a man who acted honorably, and a man of strength. This was a righteous man. And later that night, when Boaz and Ruth spoke on the threshing floor, Boaz tells Ruth, I know that you're a woman of Chayil. Now, clearly, she is not a war veteran or a woman of wealth, 
but she is a woman who has the courage of a war hero and a woman whose wealth is in her commitment to the God of Israel. And furthermore, she is a woman who has acted honorably, a woman of great strength. Boaz recognizes in Ruth his spiritual equal, a woman of righteousness, and his heart is drawn towards her. And that, by the way, is the basis of Christian marriage. It finds in the other the same passionate commitment to Christ that one has in oneself. Now, when the townspeople gathered at the gate to bless Boaz and Ruth, they say, both of you, the man of Ha'il and the woman of Ha'il, may you become a couple of Ha'il. As you become one, may you find that the two becoming one is an encouragement to all of us about what faithfulness and courage and all the godly virtues look like. You know, many times at a Christian marriage, I have heard words of Ecclesiastes 4.12 being quoted. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Well said. And in the blessing, the townspeople say, both of you are strong on your own. May you as a couple become an unstoppable force for righteousness. Now, the third facet of the blessing. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. This reference comes from Genesis chapter 38, and it's the most celebrated Leverite marriage in the Bible before Ruth and Boaz. Now, it is true that Judah was immoral and that Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute in order to get Judah to fulfill the laws of Leverite marriage. I mean, the thing was a mess, to be sure, but that's not what's meant in this third facet of blessing. Those of you who have read that story carefully will also note that in this curious case of Judah and Tamar, that this was part of the process of how God changed Judah from a self-righteous, vindictive man to a broken man who now sought reconciliation and healing. And Perez, their son, became the ancestor of the clan that included Boaz and also all the people of Bethlehem. From tragedy and sinfulness came beauty and hope. I think that's what the townspeople of Bethlehem were hoping for. Perhaps this love story can take our sinful community and begin to change it. Perhaps what we're witnessing here is the dawning of a new era. That's what they wanted, and that's why they blessed them. For all of us who think that love, when it happens in the context of righteousness, does not impact others, think again. See, love establishes a people. I think there's an application here that we simply must not ignore. When God's people begin to walk in love, there will be many that have never seen love before. Not God-honoring love or sacrificial love, liberating love, altogether righteous love. You see, all most people have ever seen is self-love, love acting for our own self-interest. To see genuine love makes people suddenly realize that there can be a higher way of living. It creates a hunger in the soul for more. Love establishes a people, a whole community, a whole society. But love also restores what is broken. And that brings us to the important point. We love because he first loved us. Until love has been experienced among us, we will never know how to love. But once we begin to see it in a way that Christ loved us, in the way in which others demonstrate sacrificial love among us, until we see this way being lived out, we cannot become loving. But once God pours out his love, he heals broken and selfish and sinful and self-righteous, and I'm in it for myself, people, and brings us to the way of sacrifice. Might I ask you a personal question? Do you love God? I mean, are you willing to begin to love in a way 
which he prescribes? Are you willing to love in a way that is courageous and righteous and sacrificial and noble and praiseworthy and cultural transforming? Because God is calling us to that way of love. And when we act that way in our wider culture, it is amazing the impact we have on the whole. Well, let's pray together. Let's take this time that we have remaining and let's just bring this matter to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we live in a society that so desperately needs models, role models of genuine sacrificial love. We have heard about the love of Christ, how much we need to see it worked out in the way in which men and women love each other in marriage, but in the way in which men and women also love each other in every context in which we live out our Christian life. Father, I pray, would you raise up men and women in Canada who so know how to love as Christ loved us so that the world might indeed see that we are the people of God. In Jesus' name, amen. John, a great and challenging message once again. And uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, my own marriage, I guess, because you had mentioned about marriage and, and a marriage based on God's love as being a force I wonder what that looks like. How might that impact our churches, our communities around us, if our marriages were a force for God? Wow. I don't even know how to respond to you outside of, I know what it looks like when I see it, and it looks awfully good, doesn't it? I mean, to see a husband and wife who see a calling from God together, rather than to live side by side and living these two separate lives going in, in their own direction, to actually see a husband and wife seeing a call of God together um, I know I've seen that in uh, you and your wife, Deb, uh, Ben, and, and I believe I have that in my wife, Kathy, as well. I often call her my fellow soldier in the gospel. And uh, it is a wonderful thing to have it because somehow this calling of God on uh, the life of a man and a woman becomes so much greater than even their commitment to each other. In fact, what draws them to each other is the common vision and mission that they have for, uh, for the gospel. So um, I'm with you on that, and may God give us many more marriages like that. Yeah, you know, and I just really need to stop and thank those marriages like that out there right now. You're making such an impact on our young people. Keep it up. Thanks so much for being with us again today, and we look forward to more tomorrow in the Book of Ruth with Back to the Bible Canada. The love story of Ruth and Boaz is so much more than just that. In it, we see two individuals who exemplify honor in both their personal and private lives. They are a man and woman of Hail. We see a picture of what it means to love God and others, and how that love then influences people around us. I pray that this message will remind and convict us of our need to get back to a true definition of love when so often we are swayed by cultural ideas. I hope you join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld takes us through the second half of chapter 4 in the book of Ruth. We want to thank all those who have so graciously given to the launching of our partnership with Back to the Bible India. In the next few months, we'll be working to refurbish the audio studios in Hyderabad and are now in the midst of working together with the leadership in India to acquire the audio equipment to get up and running again. These are exciting days and before you know it, everything will be in place for the Bible teaching programs being aired in India every day. So please continue to offer your prayer and financial support to reestablish this great work. Become a partner together with Back to the Bible Canada and Back to the Bible India. 
Call with your gift at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit online at backtothebible.ca.